0: Hello, everybody. Hello. This is the Heat Index. I am Timothy Ciphers, and I can't thank you enough for joining me once again. Uh, First three episodes are up. Apple Podcasts, theheatindex.buzzsprout.com, or for the visually impaired listeners who use the new generation Victor Stream, you can find it on there under the podcast option as well. Apple Podcasts, theheatindex.bustroute.com and on your Victor stream. Uh, Again, I'm Timothy Cyphers. We have a a heck of a a guest tonight, an awesome, awesome interview. It's gonna answer a lot of people's questions. Uh, It gave me the opportunity to get to know this individual and uh, I'm super excited. It's uh, one of my new teammates and your newly elected president of the National Beep Baseball Association. And, of course, I'm talking about Mr. Blake Boudreaux. Now, Blake and I have gotten to know each other through social media and a couple of instances at last year's World Series. But, like I said, I get to know him uh, on a an, on an, uh, more personal level because of this interview. And we get to cover a lot of things uh, NBBA-related. Uh, so I really hope that this is listened to, uh, feedback is given. He really lends clarity to his thoughts and his vision of where the NBBA is heading and where he wants it to head. Uh, we discussed Paralympic uh, consideration, the international aspect to our sport, the code of ethics, his story, his background. You know, the the Bayou City Heat uh, tied is tied into this because it is, in fact, the Heat Index. He is, in fact, a Bayou City Heat member. Um so this is going to be a, a, a heck of a listen. It's going to be a two-part episode. So this is going to be part one, and I just want to know right now. Are you ready? No, I said, are you ready? I am sure ready. I think you are too. So without further ado, I'm not going to waste too much more of your time. We're going to get into this great listen. Thank you so much for checking it out. Happy holidays. This is The Heat index and it starts now what's up everybody this is tim cyphers and this is the heat index joining me tonight is a really special guest i'm excited to do this uh his name is mr blake Boudreaux.
1: what is up blake how's it going tim
0: not bad man it's not like we don't have a lot to talk about huh
1: yeah, it's going to be an interesting night. Hopefully, we get a lot of listeners, and we're able to answer people's questions. So,
0: yeah, dude, I think we're gonna, and I want to have fun. I want to get to know you, and uh, you know, selfishly, that's that's what this has been about for me. Um, and right. and, and uh, but tonight, we you know, we got some stuff to talk about. Uh, it's funny that we're going to be talking about politics and not like real life politics, but but like baseball politics. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll have fun, and that's that's what the main thing about this is. I'm not even going to – I'm I'm going to cut to the chase right away and start off with one of those hard-hitting questions. What <laughs> the heck is the story with the Facebook groups? Like, what what is up with Beatball Nation?
1: Oh, you're going to start right off with that one, Tim. All right. Um, hard-hitting. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, you know, several uh, Facebook groups were started a couple years ago. Um, Due to us as a, an organization, as our league, tried to clean up the image of our social media pages. So we had individuals going back and forth and not necessarily, not necessarily doing anything wrong, but just from an outsider's perspective, it wouldn't have been good to see all the bickering and trash talk and everything else on an MBBA official page. Right. So what happened was we had a couple outlying groups start different pages. The first was Beat Ball Nation. And then just beatball followed, and then there was a couple of other ones that spurred from both of those groups. Um, In the beginning, those groups were fantastic. I mean, the debates we were able to have outside of the public eye just between uh, the membership of our organization and people who were interested in the sport were fantastic. Like I said, we had, um, you know, discussions regarding beat baseball and, you know... Who's the, the best hitters people have ever seen? What did we like and dislike about the World Series? You know, all the stuff that, that people want to talk about that can get kind of heated, but like I said, it wasn't in the public eye, so people were allowed to f- speak freely. Sure. Uh, it was very enjoyable for a long period of time up until, well, and this is my perspective, up until this, this past year during the election for, for president and the board of directors. Um. My opponent ended up joining the group, you know, pretty late in the game. And the group I'm speaking of is, is Beatball Nation. And it it all of a sudden became a lot more hostile, a lot more heated, and, um, contentious. You know, there was a lot of negativity that spurred from it. And the election was, you know, I don't know if that's a question somebody asked, but the election was very negative in a lot of ways on that page. So I really. It was something i didn't enjoy it was something that a lot of people didn't enjoy watching many people left the group at that time um i left later on because you know running for for president i felt i needed to hear everything that was being said i wanted to get you know the perspective so that when i did take over in this position i could basically serve our organization in the best way possible but You know, for me personally, it was something I didn't want to be a part of after the fact. You know, it brought a lot of stress to my life and a lot of dramatics that, you know, I haven't dealt with since high school. So it wasn't something I wanted to do. Um, I feel it's a great opportunity and a great outlet, but I think it just needs to be cleaned up, you know.
0: Yeah, if uh, I may. A lot lot
1: more positive, a lot more positive conversation needs to take place.
0: For sure, man. And um, listen, I'm no angel, but I will say that what this sport and particularly this league, in my eyes, and in fact, I left a team over like not thinking this is what it was anymore. And that has a lot to do with where I was personally. But nevertheless, I want this sport or I thought this sport was bigger than the individual, meaning that we were a community of visually impaired athletes and and but and, you know under that being just human beings and i will say that last year's election um uh, as much as i tried to avoid uh, the the noise um it 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 got contentious that's like the best word i can think of i mean there were personal attacks uh uh i i i didn't really know either of you other than from facebook and i started to think like this this is this is not what what we intended I don't think but um I imagine that was well,
1: super stressful. Can, right it, it was and it it caused a lot of distress to not only friends of mine but family members who were in that group um and it was something Tim where if you go back and look and I don't know what's been deleted what's still on there I'm not a part of the group anymore if you go back and look and look at the the trash talk or bashing that came from me there was zero And I made it a point not to do that because I wanted to stay above it. I'm not saying the folks who were supporting me or or had the same views as I did didn't say anything. I am my own person. They are their own person. I don't control them. Um, But I I do know from my opponent and uh, several of his supporters, there's a lot of negativity. I got accused of a lot of things that were not factual. Um, There was a statement made that I was a racist And, um, you know, pretty inflammatory accusations that are absolutely untrue. And it was not something I wanted to be a part of. It was not something I wanted my family to be a part of um, or, you know, anybody to see for that matter. So. Holy crap.
0: Um, Well, let me let's clear the air right now on that one. Are you a racist?
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. You know, the actual quote was, well, I'll tell you where it stemmed from, just so people understand where this this came from. I put together a, a large group of committees. Uh, my predecessor, um, I respect him. He's a very bright individual, Dan Green. Yes, sir. Um, he brought a lot of good to our sport. But in terms of our committees, especially towards the end of his term, um, they were pretty pretty thin. You know, we had maybe two to three uh, individuals on each committee. The committees weren't really you know, well set up, and there was hardly any representation outside of the board itself on those committees. So I wanted to set up, you know, new committees that focused on particular issues and include the general membership in those committees. So that was my point, to include a lot of bright individuals who could help our sport grow. I had people in mind. I asked people to let me know if they wanted to join the committees. Um, late in the game, there was an individual from the Chicago Comets who wanted to join one of my committees, and it happened to be one of the most popular committees out there. It was outreach. And um, it was full. We We had everybody we needed. It was broke up into geographical areas. So people focused on different parts of the country and internationally, and we already had people in place. So my response to that individual and several others was, I will put you down on the list. When something comes available, I will let you know. And you'll have an opportunity. Well, what stemmed from that is, was a comment made by my opponent that Blake must have ran out of his quota for black people. No, that was an exact quote. And that was something that a lot of people saw. It offended me, and it offended a lot of people around this league. So... That is uh Larry Reed from Tyler who is the coach of the coach of Tyler and a longtime member of the NBBA was disgusted by that comment and defended me immediately uh after that was said and several others did as well. So
0: so you know when I asked that I knew the answer. But, you know
1: I, Absolutely. I, yeah. You know
0: what I mean but but why why not? You know what I mean that, that and that's um whether that was said in jest or not, I don't know. But it's just something that doesn't need to be said. Um Correct especially if it was said in jest because it's just not funny. Um,
1: it's not funny and a lot of the things that are said, you know, I, I don't know, like you said, if they're meant to be humorous or not. It's hard to tell in a lot of cases. But it's something that, that if somebody got a hold of, say my employer got a hold of, you know, somebody saying that about me or, you know, a sponsor got a hold of a lot of things that were going in that on in that group. I'm okay. telling you, it would be very detrimental to not only myself, but our organization as a whole. So that's going to bring
0: me to, to we, we, perhaps we get back to some stuff like this, but I want to get yeah, to sir. like you, 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 you brought a sponsorship and this is a little, is a big leap for me, but like, like I think a lot of us have this dream or this envision, uh, this vision of uh, uh, becoming a Paralympic sport. Right. Right. That's safe to say.
1: That is correct. Yes. That, so, that's my dream.
0: But, uh, you know, and and I think that's uh, I think that's so badass because I, I just can't believe I'm a part of something like that. I mean, I I got to play last season with a Paralympic athlete. To me, that was such an honor. You know what I mean? But that's a long way of saying, like, I don't think the Paralympics, uh, from my little knowledge of it, would would approve of a, a lot of the crap that I see um, and, and again, I want to be accountable. Like I have not conducted myself at all times as, as a great, uh, ambat- well, it was behind the scenes. So I, I, I try my best and I, and I can only speak for me of being a good ambassador for this sport because of what it's done for me. And if we have lofty goals right. like that, can we ever maintain that, that vision? If we're going to be so, uh, what's the word, you know, just, vicious towards one another
1: right and i I will answer several of the questions that were asked within this comment um you know you take accountability for your actions and and as do i i grew up in this sport i i grew up from a child to a man in the sport of beat baseball i did not always conduct myself in a mature manner in a manner befitting of my current position. I'm a very competitive individual. I have lost my cool out on the field, as a lot of us have. Sure. Um, however, when it comes to off-the-field antics or activities, I, I've never done anything to um, shed a poor light on our organization. You know, I, I've never done anything to, um, you know, at the, at the host hotel or at different MBBA events. It's always been on the field just during the heat of competition. Sure. So I take full accountability for that. Um and getting back to your your statement regarding the Paralympics and where we want to take this sport and the you know what it's going to take to do that. You know that that's essentially where you know the focus was when I was trying to create a way to basically clean up this organization. And it's something that different individuals have tried to do over the years. I know a former president of the MBBA, Ed Doc Bradley, was one of the first to try to implement a uh, disciplinary code and to really follow through um, with different measures in order to clean up our sport and clean up the image. Um, No, you you know, the answer to your question is, will the the Paralympic Committee uh, approve of some of the things that are going on? And absolutely not. And in my, one of my campaign videos, I, I laid out a plan of what I was gonna do and one of the main topics was, I was gonna create an ethics committee to create a code of ethics that would assist us in getting where we need to be in terms of our image and basically to clean up what needs to be cleaned up. And I've done that and we have worked tirelessly to create a code of ethics that's not only fair, but applies to our organization as a whole. Um, We took a lot of the ideas and information for our Code of Ethics from the International Paralympic Committee because that's my goal. That's the goal of a lot of our athletes is to take this sport to a new level. So, therefore, we took a a lot of insight and a lot of information from their Code of Conduct We also took some information and some ideas from a lot of different amateur sports, USABA, um, a lot of intercollegiate sports, um, and professional sports. We took a lot of different paths to form this code of ethics. Um, You know, it touches on things like behavior on social media, and that's been a hot topic. You know, people don't want to be policed on social media. But what they have to understand is when you're involved in an organization, whether it be collegiate or, you know, at a Paralympic sport or whatever the case may be, you can't just go on social media and say whatever you want because it reflects poorly on the organization you belong to. And that applies to work, that applies to, you know, anything you're doing in life. There's certain boundaries you cannot cross when you belong to certain organizations, and that's That's kind of where we are with the social media. The, you know, substance abuse is one thing. You know, we need to clean that up. Drug use and alcohol abuse in our sport has been an issue over the years. And it's something that sponsorships, the Paralympic Committee in the future, and, you know, general public and media or whoever it may be do not want to see. And if they do see it, it's going to shed a poor light on our sport and set us back years. So... Agreed. that's kind of where we went with the code of ethics
0: so i'm gonna i'm gonna do the biggest big market tease of my young career so far and by career i mean podcasting <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm i'm going to i'm going to get back to the to the code of ethics because no, you know there's a lot of questions people have specifics uh as far as far right. as specifics go and you covered some of them don't get me wrong uh even even your host timmy here has some questions i don't know about concerns but you know questions. And um, we'll, we'll talk to, we'll talk about that. Um, but I, I want to, you know, I want to switch switch focus for now. You brought up growing sure. up in, in this league and in this sport, Blake. How uh, I, I hate to do this to you, but I feel like I can. How old are you?
1: I'm about to turn 34 in March.
0: Oh, okay. So you're still a young guy. You're a young buck. Um, uh, so take me through because you 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 mentioned being a kid. Um, like when, when were you introduced to beat baseball? How were you introduced to beat baseball?
1: Um, it was actually through school. I had a teacher's aide who worked with me on braille. You know, her job was essentially to, uh, make accommodations for my classes at school. So she, you know, created my exams or homework in braille or whatever I needed. And, um, her adopted son, uh, who was. I believe he was 17, 18, 19 at the time, he actually was involved in beat baseball, and she would bring pictures to school, and, you know, she brought a beat baseball to school kind of to show me what the sport was all about, and um, she asked me if I wanted to come out and observe the sport, and at the time, and still for the most part today, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of kids in our sport. You know, it's mostly adults, adults. Um, we do have some great youth athletes, but it's mostly adults. And she just wanted me to come out and basically see what it was all about. And I was nine years old at the time, so I really didn't have any aspirations to play. But you know, I went out and and you know, I was a big sports buff and wanted to check check out what beat baseball was. So I went out and basically at that first practice, fell in love with it. And at nine years old, I, I started my beat baseball career
0: like competitively
1: you know i had my first at bat um I, I didn't attend the 1994 world series in florida my first world series my first tournament was the fort worth tournament in 1995 leading up to the world series okay. and uh my first at bat in a world series game took place in denver colorado in 1995 at age 10 so i just turned 10
0: dude that is holy crap <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> um so what what did you fall in love with like do you remember it vividly like uh for me I remember I was told about it at an independent living program uh shortly po- shortly after vision loss I thought it was just this thing to get me you know happy and you know active right. and off my butt and all you know whatever and then I go out and try it out with um uh, a couple of the renegades uh and and, and coach Weissman and I put on the blindfold which was awkward and but i swing and that's what i fell in love with the, the 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 crack of the bat for the first time in years and uh well, do you remember what you fell in love with
1: you know the thing was my my dad was a coach for 40 years in middle school and high school so he was a basketball coach football coach um you know tennis coach he he did it all he helped coach my brother's baseball team my sister's softball team at one point So we were a sports family, and, you know, I I had never really gotten to participate at that time. You know, I played t-ball and I played soccer, but it was not at a high level because my vision didn't allow me to do so. So um, the thing I loved about it, and, you know, it kind of was in complete opposition to what I thought it was going to be, is essentially like you said. I thought it was going to be something, you know, go out, clap hands, sing kumbaya, everybody gets a snow cone, and... (laughs) Right. you know a blue ribbon and it, it was the complete opposite of that i wanted to compete i was a competitor even at that age and just to see these adults um blind and visually impaired adults which i hadn't been around a lot of folks with the same situation that i was dealing with so to see them flying around the field and you know running and tackling the base full force and it, it blew my mind it was literally just that first practice absolutely blew my mind and I knew competitively this was something that I needed in my life. So,
0: you know, it's funny. Um, I did. So I, I guess I, I had similar feelings at first. However, when I didn't, when I nearly didn't have it because of, you know, some stuff that was going on in my life and, and my departure from my former team. Um, I realized just how important it was to me. So that's sort of after the fact, but it, it it really is for me. It's liberating, you know what I mean? Like it's it's any opportunity I get to tell someone about beat baseball, um, it just it 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 tugs on my heartstrings, man, because it's it's just that important to me. So like I said, I mean, I'm getting choked up just saying this because I almost threw it away, or or at least temporarily, and um, I don't ever want to do that again. So. Thanks to you guys. Well, and Just,
1: you know, just to speak to the, the nature of baseball and, you know, my love for the game. I, I did have a rare opportunity for someone who's blind or visually impaired. And I did play at a major um, high level, you know, 5A high school in the state of Texas in, in football. And if anybody knows anything about Texas high school football, it's it's no joke. Right. And um my my size definitely helped me with that. My my junior and senior year I was six foot four, three hundred and fifteen pounds. So uh, wow. I was a big boy. So, you know, I did have that opportunity to let out some of you know my competitive juices and in, in, in football. But I will tell people until I'm blue in the face, as hard hitting and as competitive as that, that was for me, uh playing a sport that I loved and never thought I'd be able to play in football beat baseball is not only more complex, it's not only more competitive, but it's tougher on the body than football ever thought about being. So as you know, with our sport, you're diving on the ground, almost every play you're tackling bases. You know, uh, I feel like sometimes uh, after a world series, I'm I'm 50 years old, even even in my 30s. So (laughs) it's, it's definitely something that's, that really is something special it's more competitive than i could ever imagine it being
0: no no doubt about that i mean um so i don't like i don't want to get anything confused about what i was saying earlier like where you know i I, what i you know i i posed it as like what i thought this was was you know blah 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 no like it is all of those things like um i think people lose sight of that and that's a little heavy-handed but you know what i mean like people <laughs> lose, lose sight of what we're doing here at times but i i do want to stress and do stress in, in my everyday life that this is something bigger than me you know and that's i i i get a sense of 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 brotherhood and 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 family and uh camaraderie and um you know, it's it's such an honor to go to war uh, between the between the lines, but then off the field, season round. Well, you
1: know, ha- and you it- know, Tim, one of the one of the big things about our sport is it's it's not just a game. You know, it's not just about what happens on the field. It it really is life changing for a lot of our athletes and our volunteers, and I could go on for hours about how it's changed different people's lives throughout the years that I've been playing. But, you know, perfect example is, is Fonzie Madrano, the pitcher of the Bayou City Heat. Mm. Fonzie will admit to the fact that as a youth, as a young man, he got himself in a lot of trouble. He got himself involved in the wrong crowd and, you know, just was not headed in the right direction in life. Um, F- Fonzie's cousin ended up getting shot. Um, and losing his vision and then being introduced to the sport of beat baseball which essentially drug Bonzi into the sport as a volunteer and pitcher. Right. And watching him grow up from a you know, an eighteen year old kid who, like I said, <laughs> was headed in the wrong direction in life to someone who's not only graduated with his bachelor's and his masters, but I believe at this point has finished his doctorate. And is, has a successful career in a family with beautiful children and a wife and doing things the right way. And I don't know if Fonzie will admit to that. This, but I know he's talked about it before. Beat baseball was an essential part of him turning his life around. So, so there's stories like that throughout our sport, and it's just it's something that uh, you know breeds confidence in our athletes, but also gives our sighted volunteers a different perspective of what life is actually all about.
0: You know. That- I'm getting goosebumps listening to that because I got to room with Fonzie, right? And uh, he he did at least in a moment of candor, and I won't you know out at much of the conversation, but he he did say as much that the, it, it impacted his life deeply. And I do I just I look at someone like him he's he's a sighted volunteer, um, and and he's just as invested in this, if not more so than some of us, uh, you know, but. I mean, it's just so important to him and and I'd love to get the newly elected president's words. Um, you just said some about a specific, but uh on, on our volunteers, man. Like I, I know that we could not do this without them.
1: No, and and it's one of those things where we we have been very lucky as an organization to have um, some of our sighted volunteers stick with us for years and years and years. And it's not just, you know, it's everything from our scorekeepers to our umpires. We've had umpires who've been, you know, involved in our sport for 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, some individuals on our board, Jan Traphagen, you know, Dan Green, our former president, um, you know, and, and just the list goes on and on and on. Um, Our treasurer, John Lykowski, has, you know, been in various roles um, involved with teams and then involved with the board as an umpire doing a million different things. And this sport wouldn't be able to exist without those individuals and their, their contribution. You know, we rely on our sighted pitchers, our sighted catchers, our spotters, like I said, scorekeepers and umpires and and everybody in between, and it's it's amazing to see a lot of those folks grow up. You know, someone like Jared Woodard, the pitcher for the, the Indy Thunder, you know, seeing him, uh, you know, as a child. I remember when Jared was essentially in diapers, you know, walking around the beatball field and then seeing him turn into a a pitcher at age, I believe he was 13 or 14 years old, and then now being a two-time defending champion leading his team um you know to the pinnacle of our sport it's just amazing to watch but we wouldn't be able to do it without those individuals and they're they're essential to our game
0: uh hey for well uh that two-time part kind of stung a little bit because i was on the losing side of one of
1: those <laughs> as was i
0: yeah okay right, well fair enough yeah um yes so hey listen but in all seriousness they are uh you know th- that program and many, uh, many, many others. Um, you know the sighted volunteers are really, for me, like the driving forces to to how this is uh, trending and and how um, you know as many concerns as you and I and others have. There, I, I don't want to downplay just how proud I am of our our sport and our league. So thank God for our sighted uh, volunteers and thank you from the bottom of my heart and and uh, you know that that's that's what's uh, that's what keeps us going,
1: man. Uh ready for another hard hitter? I just want to say one thing prior to, you know, with all the controversy and all the, the negativity that's been out there and, you know, the heated issues and whatever the case may be, that is not to say that we don't have one of the greatest sports on the planet. We do. We have one of the greatest sports organizations on the planet. And yeah. we are spanning throughout the globe now. Teams from the Dominican Republic, Taiwan, Japan has recently learned how to play. Venezuela is is requesting equipment, Argentina, you know, so we, we are spanning the globe. And not, like I said, not to say we don't have one of the greatest sports in this world. I want to see it get to the next level. And that's what I'm trying to do as president of the MBBA.
0: Uh, spoken like a true ambassador, man. Um, so, <laughs>
1: all right. Speaking Let me of have negat- it. Now, now you can give me that question.
0: All right. Speaking of negativity. Uh, I was asked earlier today when I posted, like, hey, you got any questions? Uh, I'm going to ask it. Screw it. Because, you you know, I know you're, you're going to be open to it. Was okay. your departure from the Jets anything to do with your uh, op- opposition's affiliation with that program?
1: Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll op- absolutely answer that question. It was funny to me. I, I laughed for quite a long time when somebody mentioned – that I would be afraid to answer the tough questions. They obviously have not been around me long enough. So, um, (laughs) for those of you who don't know, my opposition for uh, president of the NBBA did play on the team I uh, competed with this year, the San Antonio Jets. Um, This individual and I have never really had harsh words prior to this election. I'm not gonna say he was someone I looked up to or you know, had any feelings whatsoever about, however, his actions during the election, his comments, you know, the inflammatory remarks, false accusations, whatever the case may be really put a a big damper on my, um, excitement and my passion for, you know, just the sport in general. It was something to where, you know, I look forward to the world series every single year and this individual, and his antics and, and remarks really caused a lot of problems um with me personally and uh with the team I was with. You know, I, I did my best to stay above it. I didn't confront this individual and um you know I I went to compete and you know this was my first year with San Antonio and it was my first year away from the Bayou City Heat which was a team I had been with for 23 years leading up to this year. So, um I I did my best to stay above it and, you know, the San Antonio Jets are one of the best organizations in this sport. They're they're fairly new, just a few years old. Uh Kevin Sipson, uh Marty and Eddie who, are, you know, catcher spotter, coaches. They run a tight ship and they run a great organization and every single member of member of that team is a, a competitor and a a good person. You know, I I enjoyed myself. We didn't have any sort of confrontation at the World Series between myself and my opposition as president, but, you know, I, I really did not want to be on a team with somebody who had that much negativity towards me, who wasn't supportive as a teammate, who did everything they possibly could to, you know, cause problems, and stir the pot. Um, That being said, um, although I did inquire whether or not he was going to be a member of the San Antonio Jets, I had made my decision prior to his answer to that question. Would that have affected whether or not I stayed with the team? I can't speak to that. I don't know because I didn't have time to think on it because I had already made my decision. So um, members of the Bayou City Heat approached me at a fundraiser we were doing. And, um, you know, essentially, we, like grown adults, we had a conversation. We cleared the air. There was apologies made. And I decided to come back home. You know, Mm. 23 years with the same team, the Houston Bayou City Heat is home, you know, and as much as I enjoyed being a part of the Jets, which you better believe I enjoyed that. That was one of the funnest years I've had in a very long time. Um, those guys, there's some incredible athletes on that team, and I'm telling you, you better look out for those boys for the next 10 years. So yeah. as much as I enjoyed it, I had to come home. Would my decision have been affected if I hadn't have made it prior to um, – you know, my opponent's decision to stick with him. I, I can't speak to that. But did I want a teammate who bashed me or disrespected me the way he did? Absolutely not. Because that would not happen on my current team. So.
0: I uh, appreciate the candor. And I can speak to that not yeah. happening uh, in our program. But I also can speak to the uh, the difficulty of, of leaving a team. And I never thought I would. And, and you know, uh, I <laughs> – I had the luxury of not being on a in a program for as long as you did were. How trying of a transition was that from, you know, as brief as it may have been and as much fun as you had? Um was that was I'm imagining that that was tough.
1: Well, and you know and, and this is another question I could answer for you um while I'm, you know, essentially responding to the question you just asked me you know the reason i left houston was um you know misunderstanding a uh, you know some some hostility some um basically disagreements that came up between myself and and our coach uh, jerlane carter and i have known Gerlaine since he was a <laughs> since he was a young kid I believe he started volunteering for us when he was 12 or 13 years old. So I've seen him grow up as well. Yeah. And he's a very competitive guy. He's a very strong-willed guy. I'm a very competitive guy. I'm a very strong-willed guy. And we did get into it. We did argue. There was nothing ever physical, of course. But it was, you know, arguments and disagreements, whatever the case may be. And there was some issues that, you know, other people, regardless of what the reasoning behind it was on on the team, uh, had issue with, with some of the actions that I had taken or some of the things I had said or whatever the case may be, Sure. you know, there was, there was basically, um, you know, several people on the, Bay- within the Bayou city heat organization who weren't sure whether or not this was a good fit anymore. Okay. Just to be completely honest. So there was discussion about a vote being taken, whether or not, um, I would remain on the team and, Uh, after being with that team for 23 years, I I didn't feel it was necessary or something that should be done um, to take a vote. I wanted a discussion to be had. I wanted the, I I asked my team at the time to contact me with any problems that they had with me, uh, issues that they had, you know, we could discuss it, um, you know, and that just didn't happen. You know, there was a few people who contacted me, whatever the case may be, but it just, it became a very heated issue and i decided to step away and it was one of the hardest decisions i've ever had to make uh when kevin sipson the pitcher and uh, founder of the san antonio jets started the team i was one of the first people he called um he you know he had always wanted to compete with me on the same team and i had always of course wanted to compete with in my opinion, the best pitcher in the history of the MBBA. So um, that was a year prior. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I go give this a try? Why don't I step away from whatever is going on in Houston and go and have this experience and see what comes out of it, knowing the entire time how hard it was going to be. And I'm telling you, Tim, that what hit home to me, and I got choked up when I was standing on a field and – uh Mansfield outside of Dallas, Texas uh at a tournament and hearing that Bayou City Heat cheer on the other field it just it didn't feel right. It didn't feel right at all. Um granted, i the one thing on my mind there in that tournament was to put on a show and compete as hard as I possibly could to beat Houston because I'm just a competitor. But it did not feel right. I it hurt. It hurt and you know, it, it was a really good feeling to where we could clear the air this year and and I could come back home. So
0: I love that you keep saying home, you know, it's funny because um, I don't know a lot about that and I don't need to uh, what I need to, what I want to know is what you just told me. And that's like, it feels like it's water under the bridge, but my, I mean, I played one tournament with, with the heat and I already feel, you know, a, a culture that I'm just so happy to be a part of. You know, am I um, am I thrilled about how things went down last year with me? No, you know, with me and my former team. No, of course not. Uh, however, I do think things sometimes just work out. You know, as, as cheesy as this might sound, you know, things work out the way they're supposed to. Things happen for a reason, and uh, I'm home now too. You know, and that's uh, yeah, and,
1: and that that's that's life. You know, I'm. Right my My religious views, and it may be in opposition to a lot of folks, but I am Christian, and I do believe God does everything for a reason and um He need you know it's kind of like one of those things, Tim, and you know people can relate to this family members getting spats, you know sometimes it's just best to take a step back and realize what you have, and until you take that step back or pull yourself away from that situation, you don't realize what what's important you don't realize how lucky you are or how blessed you are to have what you have in your life and those guys are family houston is family daryl minor i've known daryl since he was a teenager and now he's a 40 year old man you know it's <laughs> those guys i grew up with they taught me how to be a man they taught me how to be successful and independent blind or visually impaired individual. so you know those guys are family it is home and you know it's something that um i wanted to be a part of again and and everybody was for it so
0: blake can i uh can i take a moment for something kind of uh yeah, yeah okay uh based on what you just said it, it kind of hit it hit me it hit home which is just that family members have spats and that you got to take a step back sometimes and um now that i've had a lot of time and clear-headedness to to think about this, uh, I didn't think it would come up like this, but it's coming up organically, and that's kind of how I like things now. Um, I want to say that, to you know, from the bottom of my heart, what I was introduced to by my former team, and let's let's speak their name out of respect, is the Boston Renegades. What they introduced me to was a sport and a community that I truly, from the bottom of my heart, am so blessed to be a part of, and. For that, I'm forever grateful, um, and, and to just focus on me and what I uh, did wrong, um, you know, I'm sorry, and uh, I, I just think that I was becoming or acting a way that I did not like. It was unbecoming of a, of a, of a young man, and um, that was ultimately where I, I needed to step away. I made some noise on the way out. Uh, I just hope that they can recognize I didn't do it publicly or at least I tried my best to not do it publicly because they don't deserve that. They're a class act organization, and uh, um, I'm just so glad to be away from those goofy cheers uh, with the- <laughs> no, I'm joking, guys, but no, uh, let's get you know i I've Blake, I appreciate you giving me that moment because what you said was was deeply impactful to me, and it came up organically, and I have not said that publicly yet, so. Um, that it is what it is. I am home now. Uh, I'm part of something that's really, really special. These guys. I mean, uh, you know, and, and this includes you because you know you're part of that that Texas uh, that 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 whole like culture down there with the, with the uh, with the beat baseball teams because there's a bunch of them. Right. Um, to you know, I didn't have direction, man. I was I was sc- I felt screwed. I felt like meaning meaning like I didn't know what I was gonna do. And you guys right. uh, and, and the right. Heat players and, and um volunteers particularly from last season to just give me a shot not really knowing much about me um i did my best to like promote these like you know garbage time stats i had but um uh, that wasn't what it, this is what really drew me in is like not knowing much about me and having tanner and Gerlaine reach out to me and say yeah man like we'll give you a shot just behave <laughs> you know it's like right oh man right. i was at a time where i needed needed that culture and i got it and uh man it's infectious and I, i'm gonna i want to do my best to to be a positive impact both on and off of the field and
1: well and, and that's the thing we all make mistakes you know i i mentioned earlier and I, i'll stand by this i am not i am so far from perfect it's not even funny but you have to learn from those mistakes figure out how it impacted your life and and what you just did and apologizing to your former team and i did the same thing with with Houston, uh, upon my return, it's just something that, as a man or as something as an adult, as you grow, you learn to do. And taking something from that and admitting where you're wrong, it just shows your maturity at this point, so. Thanks, Blake.
0: Um, can you tell me about your vision? Like, was it vision loss? Or, cause you said you were in, you were like nine years old and you were learning braille. So it must've been from an early age, but uh, what, what what is that like? Cause, I feel like you have some functional vision like me. Um can you just touch on that, explain it?
1: Uh I don't know. Right. Well, I was diagnosed at 14 months. Uh my dad was playing with me uh in the living room and noticed something looked kind of odd in my eye. That was my left eye at the time and so they took me to the doctor, you know, not thinking it was anything serious and a few hours later they said your son has cancer um in his eye. And that was on, I believe, a Thursday, and they removed my left eye on the following Monday. Oh, that's how aggressive the cancer was, and um, that's what happened Um, initially. They thought the cancer was gone. Uh, Retinoblastoma is the name of it. They thought the cancer was gone, and then by the time around my third birthday, it had spread to my right eye, and they found 25 tumors in my right eye.
0: Holy moly.
1: Which which was at the time was the the most tumors they had ever seen in an infant's eye or a child's eye. So, um, it, it, was, it was pretty traumatic, and you know it took a team of doctors to really figure out what they wanted to do. And there was some debate whether or not they wanted to try to treat the cancer with radiation or remove the eye. And I think God. I think my doctor. You know everybody involved for making the decision to try to fight you know they could have removed the eye immediately and I would have I would have been fine but they wanted to try to fight this cancer and save that eye and so I was given an extreme dose of radiation so much so that they had to clear out both sides of my hospital room so the room on the right the room on the left were completely cleared out uh, hospital personnel was not allowed to enter the room without clearance and they slid my food and my mother's food through a slot in the door. So that's how much radiation that was given to me as a child. And, you know, they put radiation chips within my eye, uh, cobalt implants is what they were called, and, you know, basically an aggressive approach to try to fight the uh, the tumors. Um, that worked, but what happened was it created a massive cataract um, that they did not want to remove because they said you've been operated on way too much and if we try to remove the cataract, your eye is going to hemorrhage and you're not going to be able to do anything with it anyway. So long story short, by the time I was five or six years old, I was pretty much seeing shadows, you know, some light, some basic figures, but not able to read prints or do any of that. So it progressively got worse. The cataracts became worse and worse and worse. You know, I I learned how to use a cane. I learned how to read Braille. I did everything essentially as a blind person. Um, But, you know, I lived my life. I went to high school. I played football. I learned how to snow ski. I went to college, graduated with honors from college with, you know, two degrees and um, started my career, bought my first house. I I was living a good life as someone who was blind and essentially saw nothing but light. Um, 2009, my doctor referred me to a specialist at Baylor College of Medicine. He said, I just want you to go see this guy. You know, I don't know what's going to come out of it, but just go see him. And this doctor operated on George Bush Sr.'s cataract. So, you know, he's not just some intern or some guy who hasn't had a lot of experience. He's, you know, the best of the best. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know if I can do it, but I'm willing to try. And at that time, I don't know what it was, but I was willing to go for it as well. If it went wrong, the eye was going to hemorrhage, and I would lose all vision completely forever. And if it went well, I'd be seeing something. So it was kind of a a risk, but for me, I was ready to go. And I trusted God. I prayed about it. And um, what was supposed to be a 30-minute cataract surgery turned into three and a half hours. Um, turned into him having to bend his instruments to try to get back to remove the cataract and do some medical techniques that he was never taught, and just you know did on a whim. Um, I woke up about four hours later with a eye patch that had holes in it, and I saw a nurse walk by and uh, I remember just losing it. I just completely lost it. I jumped up, had a hospital gown on I was just going crazy. I was just so happy to be able to see that nurse walk by and looked over and saw a group of people and it, I, I didn't know who the heck they were, but it was my, uh, my parents, my brother, sister, uh, the girl I was dating at the time. And it was, it was just an incredible feeling. So that was 2009. So it's been, you know, a short period of time since I've had, you know, some good functional vision back, but it's been quite the roller coaster. Holy crap, man. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah. And I tried to condense that into as short as I could. So that that's essentially my story, but, uh, it, it's definitely been a ride.
0: I, I, I don't even know where to get it. uh <laughs> I'll tell you where, I'll tell you where I'll begin. Holy crap. I mean, I'm i uh, I'm emotional, man. That you packed a lot in, you know, you, 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 you gave me a lot there in a, in a brief pa- a period of time. I mean, that, that's, what's cool about this, man. Cause I hear, you know, episode one, Joseph Fleeks, man, he, he tells me how in an instant life changed. And you, you know right. what he said? Like the biggest thing I heard from that was, "I got a lot of life to I got a you know I got a lot of life to live." And then, exactly. you know, on an, you know, on another end of the spectrum is you and your story just now, and, and how life changed, and then it changed again, and and, and that's kind of life, right? Like it's just going to keep throwing you curveballs. Some of them good, some of them bad. I mean, that's
1: holy crap, man. Well, I, <laughs> I will tell you, tell everybody until I'm blue in the face that as much as I love being able to see better and have more functional vision, my life was good as someone who could essentially see nothing. I mean, it was really good. So, you know, I was more organized. Uh, I actually (laughs) cooked better as someone who couldn't look at my food. Now I'm like looking at it that doesn't look right. And I I end up burning it or messing it up. But, you know, life was good. And the fact is, you know, one thing that stuck with me through the entirety of it is regardless of what happened. I was going to be able to go back and play deep baseball. So the fact wow. of the matter is there's always going to be that high point in my life, regardless of if this vision stays or goes, I'm always going to have that to fall back on and enjoy. So.
0: Dude, that's, that's crazy. profound, man. Can I ask you, um, you know, you know a little bit about this. Cause I, I, I don't really hide much either, you know, and I, I sometimes to a fault, but that's another podcast. Um, so i have you know i have loads of functional vision i'm 2220 in my uh in my better eye so i actually can't really see much in front of me except you know i see sh- right. i i don't see shadows i see i see what you see or and, and by mm-hmm. you i mean sighted listener um it's just blurry and it's not correctable however i grew up totally sighted 2030 to 2200 in my good eye in, in in nine weeks i deal with a lot of uh, like how do i how do i say it? like there's a lot of complexities as far as the other person that interacts with tim do you ever deal with any of those feelings now that you have some functional vision is it confusing to others is it how do you how do you deal with that if if you have to deal with it at all
1: well and, and you know that's It's very interesting, and you know, not to go into too much detail, but that's—I chose my career path based on the fact that I could share my experiences with others. I I worked in vocational rehab as a rehab teacher, a counselor, now an employment specialist working with the blind and visually impaired. So I see it daily. I work with individuals who, you know, essentially go from 20/20 vision to blindness within a week or a day or, you know, even a year. And my job is to essentially teach those people how to get back to living life, how to be independent again, and how to, um, you know, be successful. And with me, you know, personally, like I said, it's a roller coaster. You know, you're going to have those days where you're just frustrated as can be. Uh, you didn't. You couldn't see this or you couldn't get a ride to go where you need to go. You know, that's the biggest thing as someone who's blind or visually impaired in my view. And, um, you know, with work, I, I see it constantly is transportation, just getting from point A to point B. Mm. Um, I, I can't wait until those autonomous cars come out and they're actually feasible for people to use them within the city because I will be first in line. You'll see me zooming around. I'll I'll be missing about a month of work just zooming around in my new car. So, um, you know, that's something uh, I, I deal with it every day. You know, you, you, you've mentioned the depression, you've mentioned the anxiety, all of the things in your personal life and what you've battled. And we all battle that, you know, as someone who's blind or visually impaired, it happens. And, um, You know, I I overcome the best I can. You know, I remember what's important in life and, you know, uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to have the career I have. I'm blessed to have the family I have and the loved ones and, you know, the things I'm involved with. And I I try to remember what's important even on those days where it just feels like, you know, um, insurmountable, you know, odds against me. And, you know, it's it's really something that, that takes... It takes a lot of strength to get past it, as you know. It takes a lot of strength to get past a disability and to to make life um, worth living, you know, and it's something life is always going to have its ups and downs, and it's just all about your perspective and how you treat it.
0: Yeah, so perspective has been huge for me, and, um, you know, I'm still very, very, you know, so I'm in recovery, but not only from what most people say that for. I I, I do recovery from uh, you know from vision loss, from self-loathing, from uh, you know recovery from from daily struggles, man. And it's like my perspective has to change. And and what I'm doing now, or, or like, and I mean in this moment, is trying to listen to someone like yourself. You not only deal with it uh, on an individual level, but you see it in your clients and uh your profession so i gotta i gotta take that and and allow this to be profound another you know and that's the uh, to use that word allow you know if 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 any sighted or or vision impaired person can take anything from what i'm about to say is that like allow yourself to hurt but allow yourself to be resilient as well you know what i mean like like Mm -hmm. fight you know and uh and and, you
1: you know everything happens for a reason tim and you know you you mentioned this and We touched on it before. I truly believe that. I believe that if I was a fully sighted individual from day one, I would have been a completely different guy. You know, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be as driven as I am today. I more than likely would not be alive today with the the choices I probably would have chosen. You know, I've always had a fascination with the military. I know for a fact I would have joined the military. probably would have entered law enforcement or been a knucklehead or, you know, done some crazy things. And what this, you know, God humbled me and he made me realize what's important in life through the path that I've lived. And we just have to look for the positive. We have to look for, you know, how we have been blessed by it and stop focusing on, you know, the struggles we have on a daily basis. You got to let it roll off. You got to enjoy life, look at the positive and, and move on.
0: Oh man, I'm gonna do my best. You know, I can't. You know, I, I know that days that uh, there are days that I I don't even want to get out of bed, man. I don't want to deal with the general public uh, today. I mean, I don't want to deal with Tim today. You know, I, and uh, I'll tell you that being that's like I, I I can't overstate it. Is that like one of the most instrumental things in getting those days to be further farther and fewer between each other is. Uh, is beat baseball because I look at, I get to do this. I get to interview my teammates and then I get to talk to them on like a daily basis, whether it's on Facebook or, or on the phone, you know, and I get to hear and, 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 and witness these stories and these, these inspirational people and, 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 you know, just the, you know, the, the sighted volunteers, all that. And as someone who right. is, I, I've battled depression. I have battled vision loss for, for God's sakes. Like I, I, it's uh that's something that this sport has given me is the ability to have hope again. And, um, so that, that is something I, I just can't overstate. And I I'll probably never stop saying, and, uh, you know, so thank you for sharing that. Do you have time? Like, do, do we, are we on a time crunch here?
1: No, not at all. Okay.
0: That's fantastic. So I'm going to do something for the first time ever, which is have a two part episode. So for the listeners here, You've been duped into having to listen to another episode. And by duped, I mean you get the pleasure to listen to me and, more importantly, Mr. Blake Boudreaux. Uh, we got more to talk about. We're going to talk about some of those rule changes, some of those code of ethic changes. We're going to talk more about Blake and my personal stories. And uh, we're going to have a great time. So check out part two of the Blake Boudreaux experience. I've been Timothy Cybers. Please check out the next, uh, the next episode, part two. Bye-bye.